Last week, we began our journey through Proverbs by looking at these first few verses that serve as the introduction to this amazing book, uh, which many, and I'm sure in this room, would say is probably one of their most favorite books in the Bible for a number of reasons, but because it holds for us some very practical things for our life. Uh, There are difficult books in the Bible, challenging ones to work through and try to understand, but we come to Proverbs, and we can identify with a lot of the things that we find there, and it helps us in many areas of life. But we began by defining what Proverbs are, and Proverbs are wisdom sayings. They're wisdom sayings. They are verbal representations of some particular aspect of life that is conveyed in a very condensed Uh, verbally skillful way uh, and and memorable way for us. They give us a glimpse of real life so that we can begin to order our life according to God's way. Now, the purpose of Proverbs is pretty clear in its opening. Solomon, who is the one attributed to writing the book of Proverbs, he didn't write everything in Proverbs, but uh, the overwhelming majority of the book is his teaching, his Proverbs, uh, his words of insight. He defines the purpose of Proverbs as to know wisdom. That's the purpose of Proverbs, so that we would know wisdom. And when we talk about biblical wisdom, and we shared about this last week, it's not about just growing in knowledge. It's not just about adding more factoids to your uh, mental database so that you know tidbits of information. I'm always amazed at people who can just spout off details and facts, facts and stats and figures because they remember things. And so we say, wow, that's a pretty wise person. But we all know people who can do that who make pretty foolish decisions in life. So it's not about just intellect. It's not just about growing in knowledge. It's much more than that. The Hebrew word for wisdom is the word chokmah. And when we see that in the scripture, it doesn't necessarily mean intellect. It largely refers to a skill or an ability that an individual has. So that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is a skill. It's the skill of living life. So we can define wisdom generally as the skill of living rightly. The skillful application of knowledge and insight and instruction. Now, this first uh, introduction of Proverbs has a number of words that complement this idea of wisdom. And we talked about some of those last week. Instruction, insight, uh, discipline, correction, prudence. And we also talked about actions that accompany those who possess wisdom. Those who possess wisdom can do acts of righteousness and justice and equity and to that end we say proverbs have more of a moral and ethical component to them not just one about knowledge and intellect and then verse 7 we looked at as the theme of proverbs it is the key verse of proverbs it is the theological foundation of proverbs the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge which also goes hand in hand. It's used interchangeably in chapter 9. We see it as the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the foundation. It is the essence. It is the building blocks of wisdom. And fools, however, which are contrasted to the wise, despise knowledge and instruction. We talked about this aspect of the fear of the Lord as instrumental in knowing wisdom. That apart from a covenant relationship with Yahweh, with the Lord, 
You cannot know wisdom. You cannot claim to be wise apart from the fear of the Lord. It just doesn't happen. And that's what's meant by the phrase, the fear of the Lord. That is the person who is in right relationship with God, who rightly sees God, rightly knows God, rightly fears God, has a reverential uh, awe of the holiness and perfection of God. There is no wisdom without God. That's why we said wisdom is not a natural quality or a natural ability. It comes from the Lord. The fool, we said in contrast, has no fear of the Lord. He despises wisdom instructions. And that's important to know. We're going to see that through, the, through our uh, time in Proverbs here. The wise person is contrasted with the foolish person. The foolish person doesn't know wisdom because they hate God, despise God, do not have the fear of the Lord. Lastly, last week, we looked at the approach to our time as we study Proverbs. And we said that wisdom is not a thing. Wisdom is a person. Wisdom is Jesus Christ. Scripture reveals him to be the sum of all wisdom, the one in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the greater Solomon. When we looked at the life of Solomon, we saw that though God had given him wisdom, right? His wisdom was rightly attributed as coming from God. It's not that he learned these things, it's that he was able to observe life, but God had given him a supernatural skill and ability to observe and to understand and to write all of these Proverbs. But Solomon did not finish well, did he? He didn't. 700 wives and 300 concubines later, the scripture tells us that they turned his heart away from serving the Lord, from devotion to the Lord, and then he pursued uh, idolatry. But then we have Jesus who comes along as the perfect and obedient son who remains faithful to his father and was the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant promise that God made to David that his son would forever reign on the throne. Jesus embodies the book of Proverbs. He is wisdom. He is the ideal king, and he is the faithful son, and he is the one you and I need to have a relationship with in order to be wise, right? To know Christ is to know wisdom. Well, let's pick up where we are today. We're going to be in the uh, eighth verse of chapter one, reading through verse 19, and we begin what is the first lesson in a series of lessons that are part of these first nine chapters, the first part of Proverbs. Proverbs 1, 18, 8 through 19. Hear the words of the Lord. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil and they make haste. To shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set in ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy 
for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. These are the words of the Lord. Now, chapters 1 through 9, again, are a series of lessons. We're going to break them down into about 10 lessons. And they are written in the style that was common in Near East wisdom literature. That is, the dynamic of a father writing to a son, giving a son instructions. We find that in a lot of Egyptian literature, uh, where this is the style of the sage writing to, to their mentee, the mentor to the mentee relationship, as a father to a son. So Solomon employs that here in communicating uh, wisdom and instruction to his own son, and by extension, to all of the youth of, of Israel here. Uh, but one of the things I want us to keep in mind through our time in Proverbs is that we need to understand who Proverbs were written to. They were not written to us as 21st century Christians, were they? No, they weren't. It's this ancient Israel here. Uh, we find here that the book is addressed to the son, namely Solomon's son, right? And the one giving the lesson is identified as the father. So the implied reader, the target here is the son, who might have been an older uh, child or possibly a young teenager, a young man. So to read Proverbs correctly, we have to put ourselves in the place of the original hearer, a young man. Especially if we want to understand the nature of the advice, the nature of the counsel that this first part of Proverbs is laying out for the son. What you find here is the father giving advice to the son about how to live life. Now, some dads have done that. You know, there's some, some dads with some forethought when their child was maybe born or young, sat down and began to write letters to, to, their, to their child, you know, and, and, and giving them instructions about life, things that they've learned in life. <clears throat> I love reading sometimes some blog posts from, from some fathers that they're writing you know, wisdom sayings to their kids. Here, here's what I learned in life. Here's some nuggets of wisdom that I learned. Here's some truths uh, that I've experienced in life. And you read those things, and ultimately they are helpful here. And that's what's happening here. The father is giving advice about how to live life, how the world works, how to avoid pitfalls in life, what success looks like, and how to achieve it. That's what the father's writing in these lessons. And in these lessons, there's an assumption that the son is actually heeding the counsel, listening to it, obeying it, right? So we have to assume the son's obedience. So when you read it, it isn't in the style of him correcting his son because he's doing wrong. No, no, he's instructing him on the, how to stay on the right path because his obedience is assumed. Proverbs is a master class in the skill of living, it's a master class in learning how to grow in wisdom, and this is why we study it. Now, before we get into it, one of the most common metaphors that you're going to find in these first nine chapters in these series of lessons are the words path or way, path or way. Over 25 times, you will find that in these first nine chapters, and the path or way is a rich metaphor for our actions in life. The path or the way is a direction. It has a starting point where the individual is currently. It also has a destination where the path is leading the individual, is taking them. And the path also contains some type of fork in the road. 
a, a moment of decision or key decisions, key transitions where a choice has to be made. And here we see through these lessons that the son has two paths available to him. Two paths. And we're going to explore these entirely throughout the lessons. But they are exhortations how to remain on the right path. The proper path. The path that leads to life. And only on that path will the son find that God is with him. And that's what these are about. One leads to life. The wrong path leads to death. Here, we assume the son is walking on the path of life. And the father's encouraging him to stay the course, right? Stay on this path. But he's also warning him of the dangers that await him along the way. There are things that seek to derail him off that path and put him on the wrong path, right? And that's what we find in these particular lessons. He's going to encounter along the way two women. So women that get you in trouble, I tell you. Every time. But two women, right? And these two women in Scripture here in these first nine chapters are personifications of wisdom and folly. It's the two women that are contrasted. They're the two women that beckon the Son to follow them. But each one of them leads down a very different path to a different destination and different outcomes in life. Verse 8 opens with this. Hear, my son. Your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. One of the glaring aspects that you will find as you read through these particular lessons in these first nine chapters, these exhortations, is the concept that wisdom begins in the home. The journey to growing in wisdom starts in the home. Here the son is implored by the father. He's pleading for the son to hear And to hold on to the teaching of his parents. It has always been, brothers and sisters, it still is to this day, God's plan, God's design for parents to be the primary teachers of wisdom, their children. We look back in the word of God, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 6 through 7, something that's familiar to all of us here. And these words that I command, says the word of God, you to, I command you today shall be on your heart. And what are you supposed to do with those words as parents? You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Parents are to teach their kids at every moment in life, in every situation in life. When they're sitting down at the breakfast table, when they're driving them to school, when they're driving them to a sporting event, whatever they're doing, when they're laying down at their bed at night, parents are to be instructing their children in the word of God and the wisdom of God. That mandate and duty of parents to instruct their children is reaffirmed in the new covenant. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but to what? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Hear that. Whose responsibility is that? Parents. Yeah, both fathers and mothers. The father has the leadership role in the home. The father is to lead spiritually in the home. But both have authoritative responsibility for instructing their children. Well, speak to dads, right? It's your main responsibility. It's yours here. That this is not an area that we as dads can slouch in. 
This is not an area that we can, we can kind of coast through in life, that we can afford to put off. When you look at the, the root of the myriad of problems facing our society today, our culture today, it stems from what? Fatherlessness. Dads who are absent. They may be physically present, but they are spiritually and emotionally absent from the homes. Some dads are good providers. They're good protectors. They take their kids to, to, their, to their sporting events and to soccer practice. And they go to every game. They take their families on vacations. But they're spiritually absent in the home. There's no spiritual uh, encouragement and exhortation in the home. But parents are to be the primary educators and influencers in the lives of their children. Now, Western culture, thinking itself to be infinitely wise, right, and superior to the ancient paths before them, the ancient ways, outsource the spiritual education of children to paid professionals. And uh, that exercise has not proven to be the wisest of decisions. And we see that play itself out in the lives of our kids today, this generation. So much so that the primary influencers of Gen Z and even younger millennials today are not parents, are not pastors. The primary influence of most of the emerging generations are their peer group, their social circle, social media influencers. Their favorite entertainers. That's who they go to for advice. And when they want to know something, they'll either go to them or they'll Google it. But they don't go to their parents. They don't go to their pastors. The Christian worldview that we want our children to have, our young people to have, is first and foremost shaped in the home. Parents, that's your God-ordained task. It's yours and yours alone. Don't outsource it your job to teach your kids how the world works. If you're a grandparent in here, it's your job to help your children parent their children. In whatever area of responsibility you have, in the time you have your grandkids, that's the time to pour into them a Christian worldview. Don't relinquish that role. Don't outsource it to teachers, not even kids ministry teachers, not to daycare workers, not to your, the coaches. It's your responsibility. When you think about the world our kids are coming into today, right? We have a state right now that is increasingly growing in wickedness and, and, and is godless um, that thinks that our kids belong to the state. You've heard this. This is not anything new to you, right? But it should cause you to always perk your ears when you hear politicians and our leaders begin to talk about kids belonging to all of us. We all have a responsibility to raise kids. No, they don't. To you has God given the responsibility for the raising of your child, the instruction of your child, the education of your child in wisdom in the ways of the Lord. The state wants to indoctrinate our children not in a biblical worldview, in a Christian worldview, but in a godless worldview. We've observed the decay of culture, the decay of society as the family has been systematically destroyed and somehow reimagined according to depraved ideologies. We see brazen educators who think it's their job 
to teach our children about sex and, and gender and queer theory and transgenderism and all sorts of depravity. And they think it's okay to hide that from parents. Parents don't need to know. It's none of their business what we do with their kids when they're with us during the school day. You cannot abdicate this most important of responsibilities. Teach your children the biblical foundation of the fear of the Lord. Teach your grandchildren the biblical foundation of the fear of the Lord. If you don't have children or grandchildren, but you're part of a church family, you have a responsibility to help the families here and the parents here raise their children, teaching them this theological foundation of the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom. But ultimately, it's your responsibility to transmit your family's spiritual inheritance to the next generation. And I see that so clearly here in the way these letters are structured. Here, my son, hold on to what your mom and dad have taught you about the Lord. With that, I want us to look at the child's responsibility also, which is obedience. As you sense here and feel the father pleading, right? Listen to me. Many of you talk to your kids, right? When you're trying to tell them something important and they're not really hearing you, because they have selective hearing. Any of your kids have selective hearing? <laughs> but you have something important to say. What do you hear me out? Listen to me. Don't tune me out. This is important. This is kind of the sense here. The plea is not only to listen, right? But to not abandon the teaching, the instruction when they're pressured to do so. Parents have the responsibility to instruct, and then children are commanded to obey. Children are commanded to obey their parents. It's the fifth commandment, isn't it? Exodus 20, 12. Honor your father and your mother. This is enshrined in the law of God, isn't it? Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Children are to submit To their parents because God has placed them in authority over them. Kids, your parents have been placed by God over you. You're to honor them. You're to respect them. You're to obey them because that honors, respects, and obeys the Lord. They're to honor parents by submitting to their good instruction and correction with proper obedience That's in the law of God, the Ten Commandments. But we don't find any of that abrogated under the new covenant. Because Paul restates this law in Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is what? It's right. It's right. It's right because, first of all, it's God's design and intent children to obey their parents in the Lord. That is the natural order that God has established in the home. It's right because God has commanded it in his law to obey parents is to obey God. And it's right because God through the gospel has enabled joyful obedience. As our children grow in the knowledge of the Lord and the ways of the Lord, there's also the assumption here that they are going to Obey the good news, obey the gospel, and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, and be able to obey their parents joyfully in the Lord. Children are to obey. 
And guess what, parents? You're to insist on it. It's not optional. It's not something you negotiate. It's not something you count down to or count up to for children to obey. You have to enforce obedience. And you need to discipline disobedience. My goodness, we have a whole generation of young parents here who think, you know, I'm going to treat my kid like an adult and I'm going to reason with them and I'm just trying to try to know. Sometimes you got to beat disobedience out of a child. I'm not advocating for physical abuse, all right? But you need to discipline your children. You need to correct your children. Why? To allow a child to defy you and to allow a child to disobey you is to teach them to defy and disobey God. That's what you're reinforcing when you don't discipline your kids. Why is it getting quiet in here? Why do we see that? I mean, you go to, a, go, to a, go to Walmart. We learn a lot of lessons in Walmart, don't we? <laughs> you watch parents there. Their kids are just having their way, throwing tantrums, and the parents at their wit's end, they don't know what to do. Well, that's a child that's being trained to disobey God. Now, we have a lot of wise parents in this room who've raised children. I want to encourage you, if you're younger parents and have younger kids, Get around some of those to learn those particular ways. We're going to talk more about that in our series in Proverbs, but I think you see that implicit here in these instructions here. It will not go well for them in life if they don't learn to obey their parents in the home. Very important. Verse 9 says, for they are are graceful. Well, first of all, what are they? They are the father's instruction, the mother's teaching. They are a graceful garland for your head, and pendants for your neck. And herein lies the motivation for our kids, for the son here, to obey the word of God and the wisdom passed on from his parents. A child who heeds his father's instructions and warnings is made attractive by their obedience. This is a beautiful thing. These garlands and pendants are just rich metaphors portraying victory, right? The garland's the wreath of victory placed on the head. The pendant has some ancient Near East uh, associations that are a pendant given to the victor, the one who triumphs in conquest, right? So, so here, wise children wear wisdom figuratively as a crown and a necklace. They're the adornments of parental wisdom upon the child who triumphs in life and triumphs over their enemies through obedience. That's what winning in life looks like for our kids. Heeding the call of wisdom that has been passed on from the father to son and remaining on the path of life are like garlands and pendants around the neck. That's the blessing the law of God confirms in the fifth commandment, that it will go well with you. That's the general blessing upon our kids when they obey us and obey the Lord. And we have Jesus as our perfect example of this. Uh, the perfect example of the obedient son. In Luke chapter 2, we have the story there um, of Jesus, right? Staying behind in the temple. You remember that story there? He stays behind the temple and they're in awe of his wisdom. I mean, how is this child? And this is the son of, of Joseph and all of this stuff. And the parents, they left him at Walmart. Now they got to go back for him, right? But and they come back, and it's almost like, what happened to you? We were worried about you. 
All of that, that portion here. But look what it says about Jesus here. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. He obeyed them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's why we look to Jesus here in all of these aspects of wisdom because he is our example of what the faithful son looks like. Now let's dive into this first lesson here. And if we had to give it a heading here, you see it in your ESV uh, as a subheading there, this uh, enticement of sinners, right? Or avoiding the enticement of sinners here. Verse 10, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Immediately, this first lesson sets before the son the fact that there are two conflicting ways of living. Two ways that are vying for the son's acceptance. The first way is the way of the family's tradition of wisdom. The instruction, the teaching that has been passed on. The teaching of God's law. The scripture. For us now, right? The the gospel of Jesus Christ. Apostolic teaching. Our family values based on our faith foundation and tradition. And the second way is the world's devotion to folly and wickedness. The worldly ideologies, the philosophies that are not based on the fear of the Lord, but a rejection of God and His law. These are the two competing ways set before the Son. Two different paths in life. And the two will lead to two completely different outcomes and destinations in life. The way of the family and the way of sinners. The Son... If sinners entice you, who are these sinners? Who's the father talking about here? Well, as we've read in this here, we can kind of draw out who he's talking about here. The sinners are the son's peers or their peer group. They're around the son's same age, but they've chosen a different path in life. There's peers in age, but they're not peers because they don't share the values that the son was raised with. And the father, what he does now is set before them an illustration, a parable, uh, an example of a particular temptation that the son may face as he's pressured by this peer group to join a violent gang and pursue a life of crime, getting easy money through robbery, violence, and murder. And you might be asking, that's a weird first lesson to start with. How many of you have sat down with your kids and said, don't join the murderous gang. Right? It's probably not the first lesson we start with, but there's a point uh, that the father comes to here, right? Uh, he says, if sinners entice you, now that word entice actually comes from the same root of the word that we have translated as simple that we saw in verse 4, that this book is for the simple, right? To, to learn wisdom and knowledge and instruction and insight and all of these things. The simple in Proverbs are not dumb people, the simple is a, a naive people, right? They, they're ignorant in how the world works or in the ways of the world. They're immature in those things. They're gullible. The simple can be shaped. They're not like the fool. The fool has, despises wisdom and knowledge and instruction. But the simple can be shaped either way. They can be taught. They can be shaped to go on the right path. Or they can be persuaded and deceived and swayed unto the wrong path. So to entice means to be easily persuaded. 
If the son is gullible, he may be enticed through deception or pressure from this band of misfits here, right? An interesting translation of that word entice in the Hebrew also means to be uh, wide, like something that's wide or open. So in other words, a person who is easily enticed is someone who is maybe open-minded or wide open to allowing themselves to be persuaded to take the wrong path. That's an interesting way of looking at that aspect there because uh, Christians are to be narrow-minded, right? We really are. We're not open-minded to worldly ideologies. We're grounded in the Scripture. We have a way of interpreting the world, a way of seeing the world through the lens and filter of the Word of God. We are not open to everything. We don't put everything on the same equal footing as Scripture. Scripture is here. Everything else is down here. Amen? Yes? I hope so. Otherwise, we're the gullible here that this is talking about here, okay? So that's important. The Father's instruction to the Son is clear. If sinners tempt you to go against wisdom, to go against your Father's instruction and your mother's teaching, to do something contrary to the Word of God, do not consent. Don't go along with it. Don't yield to the enticement. Don't be even disposed to to going along with it. Do not consent. Because they're going to tempt you. If they say, verse 11, come with us. Now, the Father's going to lay out the form of the temptation here <clears throat> that, that makes some promises here uh, to the Son. And this is important. Come with us. Listen to that phrase, the way he describes it as this gang coming along to his kids saying, join us, join in with us, come along with us. Because this is exactly the call of the world, isn't it? Especially to our young people. Come along with us. Join us. Don't miss out. Our kids are being continually enticed to follow along with the world. Face enormous pressures and temptations from the world today. Some of you are kind of ignorant about what some of that looks like. And this is not a time, brothers and sisters, to be ignorant about that. There's a hill to die on here in this world today for parents, okay? And, and I encourage you to get up to speed here. Those of you who have young kids, you need, you need to know what's going on in the world. I'm going to send you some resources here in the coming weeks. I want you to get knowledge in this area. I want you to really know what's going on in the world because you need to help your children navigate through this. We need to help our young people navigate through the vileness, through the depravity, through the garbage uh, that is being presented to them 24-7. It's nonstop. I was just watching, because this is, this is how insidious it is to this, to, at this point in time. I, I don't recall any of this as a child, you know, and it, it was out there, but right now, through technology and through the different platforms that are available right now, uh, there is an active move right here to, to ruin our children. To ruin. I was watching this thread of TikTok videos that was compiled by a, a Twitter account. If you don't know what TikTok is, it's short form video content that's, that's aimed on a, on a platform that's aimed at preteens. Right? That's what TikTok is for. A lot of people use it. A lot of people have accounts on it, but it's primarily aimed at young teens or preteens. But this particular thread was Elementary school teachers gloating about how they are teaching 
kindergartners, first graders, second graders, third graders about queer theory, homosexuality, deviant lifestyles, what a kink lifestyle is, all sorts of vile and filth and boasting about how parents are unaware of this stuff. What they're doing to hide it. Think about that for a moment. You're sending your kids off, you think, to learn math and science and history, how to read and how to write. And they're coming home wondering, am I a boy or am I a girl? That's serious stuff. Right now, in some school districts, right, if a, if a second grader is being led down a path out here and think they, they may be a biological boy, but they think they're a girl, the school thinks it's okay to take them down a path now to maybe be, get on hormone blockers to learn how to transition and keep that from the parents. And you tell me there isn't something demonic going on in our world today? And we need to wise up about this stuff. And thankfully, some people are. But this is, this is what our world has become. This is what it's like. And it's not going to get easier. It's going to get that much more difficult. The world's come along with us. Go along this ride. Don't miss out. I'll tell you one thing I regret. I, I say this before. I regret allowing my child to be on social media at a young age. And I'm going to encourage you parents who have young kids, keep them off of that. Keep them off of that. All it does is foment in them this fear of missing out. My God, what is going on out in the world? Oh, look at them. They, life looks so great for them. And all they're doing is in being done. Every other TikTok video that you see out there is someone saying, here are my pronouns. I'm a horse. I'm a cat. And this mental illness on display. And the world's like, let's celebrate that. Let's applaud that. Let's everybody go along with that. It's a big deal, brothers and sisters. It's, it's, it's sobering. Come with us. That's what the Father's saying here. Come with us. Now, this isn't just for young people and children. Because we all face that temptation. We all face that pressure to compromise in the world. To compromise our allegiance to God and to wisdom. Come along with us. There's something here that we need to see before we even move on to the point of what the Father's teaching here. For our kids, for our, for our young people here today, young men, young women, beware of friends who offer you identity or demand a certain loyalty that competes with that of your families. That is contrary to what your father and your mother are trying to instruct you in the ways of the Lord and the ways of wisdom here. Sinful peers offer to our kids, to our teens, an identity and belonging and community that they crave. So you need to have that in your home. You need to make sure that that is being fostered in your home. 1 Corinthians 15.33, we know this scripture. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals or good character. Your friends, right? Your circle of peers will influence which path you take in life. The implicit message in this first lesson is a reminder of the influence of your circle of friends. That are going to have on your character, that they're going to have on your reputation. Hear me, young person. 
Kids, listen to me. Who you associate with, who are your closest friends, are going to determine the outcome in a lot of this in your life. Are going to determine the path that you choose to take in life. I can tell you, a lot of, a lot of teens that started off on this faith journey with me back in the late 1980s, as I was a 16-year-old, are not serving the Lord today. And I look back at their circle of friends that they chose to separate themselves from the youth ministry, from the church, and the people they began to hang out with, and none of them are serving the Lord today. Now, it's the Lord who saves, but the Lord puts us into a faith community because we need this so that we can grow in the Lord, so that we can grow in the knowledge of the Lord. But if your closest friends and the ones you look to are the ones who influenced your life are those who do not serve the Lord, despise the Lord, hate the word of God, watch out. You're not on the right path. You're going down the wrong path that's not going to lead you to life. Young person's primary social group should be their family and not their peers. And there's a whole host of reasons why they're not today. Dual income families have a lot to do with that. The pursuit of the American dream has a lot to do with that. You know, so they look to their peer group for that kind of belonging, that type of community. But it needs to be in the home, first and foremost. So parents, pray for your kids. Pray for their circle of friends. Pray for those that come alongside of them. It's crucial. It's critical. Work hard to make sure that your children root their sense of belonging in community, first in the Lord, but, but also in the family, in the home itself. Super important. Anyone who tries to pull someone away from his or her family is an enemy and should be treated as such. You hear me? They're trying to pull them away from you as parents and your family and the values that you have been teaching your kids and instructing to them is an enemy. Treat them as an enemy. I'm not saying kill them. (laughs) But close to it. No. I'm saying you need to pray those out of your kid's life. The crux of the temptation that's dangled before the sun is found there in 11 through 14, right? If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We'll have one purse, right? This is just some, some, some figurative, imaginative language that's being used here in this parable to, to demonstrate the temptation here. The incitement here to the son to join the violent gang is through the promise of financial gain. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Right? And he's saying that basically we'll kill anyone who gets in our way, right? We'll, we'll take what belongs to us. And there's also the promise of community. Throw in your lot among us. Join us. We're going to split everything, right? We, we'll all have one purse. Join us. We'll be the family you never had. And you'll get far more with us than you can get by yourself. What are they promising the son here? Easy money, right? Hey, you don't have to work hard. We're going to take it. We're going to take it by force. We're going to ambush 
someone and we're going to rob them and steal from them. And if we have to kill them, that's what we're going to do. Use any means to get it. What are they motivated by? They're motivated by greed and they're motivated by lawless behavior. So the father is saying, hey, son, there are those in life who are going to want you to join them here in this crusade of easy money. He calls it unjust gain, right? They're making a living by taking from someone else, by stealing from someone else, by robbing others, and sometimes employing violence to get what they want. But there's an end to them, and this is what the father wants to drive at. This is the end of those that accomplish that. Verse 15 through 19 there. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Again, this is the admonition. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. In vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. So he's pleading with the son. Don't walk in their paths. Don't walk in their way. Don't even go at all in their direction. Don't just follow their sinful behavior. Don't even follow the course of their life at all. Why? Because it's a devastating path to take. The outcome of those who pursue that is their blood is going to be shed. It's destruction. It's death. Not just the blood of the victims that are going to be shed, but they're going to shed their own blood. And I love Solomon's verbal jujitsu here. Look at these three, the way he says it, three, three ways here. The sinners say... Let us lie and wait for blood. The sinners make haste to shed blood. And the sinners lie and wait for their own blood. They're waiting to ambush others. And in their waiting to ambush others, they're going to be ambushed themselves. So he says, look, they're even dumber than birds. At least a bird knows when there's an obvious snare, they avoid it. If it's not camouflage, they're not going to fall into the trap. But these fools, they plunge headlong into it. Plunge headlong. When they're plotting the destruction of others, they're also being the architects of their own demise. Sooner or later, their sins are going to catch up with them and ensnare them. This is what the father's telling the son here. Don't be foolish. Don't be a fool. Recognize the obvious trap that they're trying to entice you into to make easy money. To get stuff through theft is an obvious trap. Don't fall for it. That's why he says in verse 19, Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessor. Unjust gain. Unchecked greed. A lust for material possessions and getting them at any cost will wreck your life. Will cost you dearly. You're going to read through Proverbs. It tells us a lot about working hard. It tells us a lot about how to get wealth and what that looks like in here, in life. And and I've said this last week, Proverbs are not promises the way you and I think about promises. You know, do A and you will always get B. That's not the way to look at Proverbs. Proverbs are what generally happens in life, the general outcome of life when you walk the way of wisdom. Do A, and you will generally get B. But in another sense, Proverbs are promises because eventually the outcome is going to happen. Maybe not now, but it will later, especially 
the day of judgment. They will always work out in the end. And this is what the father is trying to convey to the son here. There are people who pursue unjust gain, who steal, who cheat, who rob, who cheat on their taxes, steal from their parents, and they seem to get away with it right now. Right now. And we know people on the flip side who <clears throat> always do the honest thing. They pay their taxes. They don't take bribes. Right? There's financial integrity in their life. And they suffer great loss sometimes. Doesn't seem fair. It's the thing that vexed Solomon. Right? When you read Ecclesiastes, man, I look at the world and I'm like, wow, the one who tries to do the right thing gets screwed over. And the one who's a crook seems to get away with it, right? You read Ecclesiastes, and that's kind of where Solomon's like, it's like, like this doesn't always work out. But the wisdom that the father is teaching the son here is that greed for unjust gain, easy money, will destroy you, sometimes now, sometimes later, but in the end, it always will. Unethical business practices may land you in jail now. Your lust for money and gambling and other things, right, may cost you your life savings or your family's savings. You might pursue get-rich-quick schemes and fall into pyramid schemes because you want the easy way to get wealth and you end up losing it all. You may steal from the petty cash funds from your company and get fired. But a lot of times those things aren't discovered in this life, but eventually they will be judged on the day. We know that. Now, you and I probably have not been tempted to join a violent gang lately. Have you? I'm looking around this room. There's some of you. I'm wondering. (laughs) We read this and you go, what does this have to do with me? You know, I've not been tempted to go on a crime spree with, you know, a band of misfits, at least not lately. But you and I have all given into peer pressure. You and I have been given into the pressure to follow along with the crowd that has plunged us headlong into something sinful. Some of you out of loneliness and a desire for relationship or community have found yourselves in a relationship you shouldn't have been in. Or you found yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time and that led you down the wrong path. There's some in this room who've maybe cheated on their taxes, abused their company credit card, Lied to make a sale. Falsified their time card. Manipulated others. Slacked off during work hours. That exists here. Right here. The heart of the matter, when it comes to this aspect of unchecked greed and desires is that eventually we're going to go down a path here that's going to lead to destruction. The issue is not money. The issue is not gain. The issue is not profit. But how you get it and how you use it. Proverbs, we're going to see that wealth comes by good work ethic, good stewardship, and generosity in the way you use what you have. That's all a good thing. They are blessings from the Lord. It's neutral from that perspective. But everywhere in Proverbs, there's warnings, there's condemnations about getting money the easy way, through unjust gain, get-rich-quick schemes, or using others to get what you want. That is always wrong. 
That is always not the path of wisdom, but the path of folly itself. And if you're greedy for money, Paul has a warning for us. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, 9 through 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Notice what he's saying here. Not, not those who are rich. Those who have a desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through, listen to the language here, craving, this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The desire for riches, unjust gains, love of money, plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is where the pursuit of the American dream becomes the American nightmare, right? In and of itself. Because it can destroy you. It can destroy and has destroyed families. Jesus himself said, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world? And in the end, what? He forfeits his soul. Not a good trade-off, is it? This is what the father is warning the son about. And you and I will face enormous temptations in this area at different times and stages of our life. To take the easy way. To look for the easy money because of unchecked greed. But there's good news for us. There's good news for us. Christ can rescue us from our foolish and sinful greed. And he has. Isn't it wild to think that Jesus had a disciple that fell into this exact same trap that the father is warning the son about? The trap of being enticed by sinners to join a bloodthirsty gang. To set a trap to murder an innocent man. You know who that is. Judas, right? It's exactly what Judas was enticed with. Money. Right? He had unchecked greed in his heart. We know that because John's gospel tells us that Judas was a thief. He'd be dipping into the offering basket. All the time. He was stealing from Jesus. Isn't that bad? That's messed up. He was dipping into the offering bag. That's not the deacon you want counting your offering there. And then what happened? He was enticed by a bloodthirsty gang. Who were they? Religious leaders. Who wanted to kill Jesus, right? And all of that set the stage for Jesus' arrest, his mock trial, his execution. Jesus is put to death among thieves. It seems like this proverb is not true. And I say that because an innocent man dies. And it seems like the guilty, the thieves, get away with it. He is killed. He does die. An innocent man dies and and those who deserve to die don't. At least not immediately, right? The guilty man gains money unjustly. Judas throws his lot in with the gang to ambush an innocent man for profit. And it looks like he got away with it. But we know the story. When Sunday rolls around, Judas is dead. Judas is in the grave. And Jesus rose from it. Jesus took upon himself the punishment that sinners 
and thieves deserved so that sinners and thieves like us could be forgiven. Jesus was punished for our greed, for our sinful desires, so that we could be freed from greed and disordered desires, to live righteously, to live generously. He gives us his spirit to empower us to walk in wisdom, to learn how to be content, right, with what we have in this life, to avoid the trap of easy money, and to use whatever comes to us, right, whatever money comes into our hands to to help others instead of using others to help ourselves get more money. And Jesus also gives us a new community, his church, a community of faith that doesn't entice us to sin, but actually stirs one another to love and to good works. That admonition from the Father to the Son holds for us right now. If sinners entice you, do not consent. Do not walk in the way with them. Hold your foot back from their paths. You have Christ. You have Christ who is your wisdom and will lead you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake.